0: Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 10 through 23 and verse 8, Jeremiah twenty-two ten through 23, 8. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, For he shall return no more to see his native land. For thus says Yahweh concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die, and he shall never see this land again. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. And his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. Who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Then he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares Yahweh. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, my brother, or, oh, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, Lord, or, oh, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil, O inhabitant of Lebanon nested among the cedars. How will you be pitied when pangs come upon you? Pain as of a woman in labor. As I live, declares Yahweh, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring of my right hand. Yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, There and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will, they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man Coniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled out and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, write this man down as childless, a man who, does not, who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares Yahweh. Then, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I shall set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they shall no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but... As Yahweh lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father. Grant grace and mercy that we would trust in none other supremely than your King. And all that is true for us in Him. In Christ's name, Amen. It's been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. The real genius of our republic is more negative than it is positive in nature. The genius isn't in contriving some kind of constitutional government that's just so good, but in recognizing that the constitution of man is so bad. The system of checks and balances, the limitation of terms, the division of power, constitutional rights... All these limit how much bad a bad man or bad men can do. Given this, isn't it peculiar that even in our republic, even we are enchanted by kings, the kingly, the royal, the regal. You can chalk this up to a Thurian legend, fairy tales, historical intrigue, or the royal pomp that still remains intact in some places. But I think there's something far deeper to this. The historical story of kings is one that's filled with injustice and unrighteousness, and even so, there is a longing for the royal, the majestic, the regal, the kingly. And I think our republic betrays this whenever she says, "...in God." We trust. Here we have a string of wicked kings. And notice that the hope that's held out. The, 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 the solution to all these wicked kings. Is not the elimination of the Davidic dynasty. But the fulfillment of it. It's not less monarchy. But monarchy in the fullest. That's the hope of man. Spreading government out to more wicked men doesn't bring enduring peace and justice. The only answer is an absolute sovereign who is absolutely good. Mysteriously, he's also man. He's more than man, but he must be man. And he shows us in that man as he ought to have been, man as he should be kingly, imaging forth his sovereign in the domain and sphere entrusted to him as a steward king. The first king that we come across in this list, this series, is Shalom, more frequently referred to by what is likely his throne name, Jehoahaz. He was the first of Josiah's sons to rule, but he was Josiah's youngest son. He's the youngest son. But he's the first to rule. And this enthronement, why this happens, we're not sure of everything involved. But it happens at the will of the people in something that bizarrely sounds like a democratic monarchy. Second Chronicles 36.1 The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. He reigns a, a, a short three months before Pharaoh Nico who had defeated his father Josiah in battle, deposes him. All that has already taken place whenever we read our text. Weep not for him who is dead, that's referring to Josiah, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, Jehoahaz, who's been taken captive by Pharaoh Necho. And thus it's made more clear with verse 11. Thus says Yahweh concerning Shelem, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of, his fa- instead of Josiah his father, who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. So they're being commanded not to lament for Josiah, lament for Jehoahaz. Now at the death of Josiah, 2 Chronicles 35, 25 tells us, Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They have made this a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. So this means at the time that Chronicles was compiled, at the time that Chronicles was written, which would be after the captivity, at that point they are still lamenting the death Of Josiah, But at this particular point, what Jeremiah is calling for is not to lament for Josiah who has died, but Jehoahaz who's just been taken captive into Egypt and will return no more. And this might be why he's referred to as Shalem and not Jehoahaz, which is likely his throne name. Because he's just Shalem. He's not a king. He's been taken away captive. And so in this, he serves as a sign of what is to befall the nation. With this command, it's as if Jeremiah is saying, do not weep for the great tragedy of the past. Weep over the greater tragedy of the present and the future. Weep for what lies ahead of you. Worse than the loss of a great king is that Yahweh, their king, is now bringing judgment against them. It's not the past that's most, most worth lamenting. It's their present and future. It's, a, it's what's about to unfold. Don't mourn the loss of the kingly in the past. I'm speaking to you now. Don't mourn the loss of the kingly and the royal and the regal and the majestic in the past. Mourn if you have no part in the royal future that lies ahead. Don't weep that the majestic fairy tales... Of your childhood. Those golden dreams, don't weep that they aren't true. Weep if the greater glory that they smack of is completely lost to your future. Don't weep if the glory that they, they held for you is forever gone. Weep if it's forever from your past. Weep that it's forever gone from your future. Then we go on to a different king with verse 13. Shalom Jehoahaz has been carried away captive. The king that's addressed in verse 13 is a different king. And you understand who he is when you come to verse 18. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim. So verses 13 through 17 tell us of Jehoiakim's crimes. And then with verse 18, we turn to the consequences for those crimes. Jehoiakim was the second oldest son of Josiah and the second to rule, First Chronicles 3.15 tells us he's the second oldest son. And we read in Chronicles later on, he's the second son to rule. The eldest son of Josiah, for whatever reason, we're not ever told why, never rules. He had four sons. Now, whenever Pharaoh Necho disposed Shalom, Jehoahaz, whenever he deposed of him, he set up Eliakim, his brother, in his place, changing his name to Jehoiakim. So, then we know that somewhere around the eighth year of Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Nico, and at that point, Israel, Judah, excuse me, comes under his rule. And a woe of judgment is pronounced here against Jehoiakim for his wicked and unrighteous building efforts, 22, 13, and 14. Now, 2 Kings 25, 23, 35 tells us that Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So Jehoiakim wasn't going to be put out himself. He's got to pay tribute to Pharaoh Necho, and he gets that tribute from the people. And he's not going to He's not only going to not be put out himself as far as what he's going to pay tribute, he's not going to be put out as far as making himself more grand. And so he's going to carry out a building program, but he doesn't have the money to do it so much anymore. How's he going to do it? He forces them to build it as slaves. In Deuteronomy twenty-four, fourteen through 15, this command stood over all the people. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or of the sojourners. If he's a free man who has not sold himself into slavery to you, per the law, you will not oppress him. You're not even to do that. If he's a sojourner in your land, you shall give him his wages on the same day. Before the sun sets, before he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to Yahweh and you be guilty of sin. So, the opulence then of Jehoiakim's house with its spacious rooms, its cedar paneling, its vermilion paint, which would be this expensive, lavish red paint, the opulence of his house is that he's building for himself is matched only by the unrighteousness and wickedness with which he built it the height of its glory speaks to the depth of his depravity and so the stinging question comes that calls for a comparison between Jehoiakim and his father verse 15 do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness then it was well with him Cedar does not a king make. Jehoiakim was indeed king, but he was not kingly. He was king, but he wasn't kingly. What is it that makes a king a king? This is similar to asking, what is it that makes a man a man? There are men who, though they are men... They are boyish. They are childish. And it's just this type that so often strives for manliness, but always in such a way that just makes its boyishness more manifest and more apparent. It's such men who try to compensate by artificial markers of manliness and thereby demonstrate just how boyish they are. In Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, the more earthy, not earthly, earthy, the more earthy King Loon of Archenland was kingly, whereas the Tisroch of the neighboring nation, their ruler, was trying to compensate. He was outrageously opulent and, and gaudy in his display of kingliness and thereby he wasn't kingly at all. The Tisroch had a kingdom of gold, but King Loon was a golden king. And the difference between the two is that the Tisroch's glory was one that was built by taking, and King Loon's glory was one that was demonstrated by giving. It's the difference between a glory that's, that's strived after by grabbing and a glory that is already present out of which one gives generously. Loon, king Loon's glory was one of magnanimous joy and the Tisrox was one of demanding servitude of others. And so King Loon says to his son, this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. To have a kind of poise and faith and confidence to display that kind of magnanimous joy even whenever there's not that much there. The truly majestic is not a glory that grabs, it is a glory that gives. So Josiah did justice and righteousness. He judged the cause of the needy and the poor. And he ate and drank like a king. 25, 15, 22 verses 15 and 16. He used his authority not, not to serve himself. He used it to serve others. His was the kind of glory that generosity poured out of, flowed out of. His was not a kind of glory that you had to pour into. His was the kind of glory that flowed out. And so to do justice and righteousness then, judging the cause of the poor and the needy, is, verse 16, to know Yahweh. To be kingly in this way is to reflect the king who does not need and demand. He overflows lavishly with grace and justice and mercy. You remember in chapter 9, Yahweh declared, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Our God delights in unfailing covenant love, justice, and righteousness. He flows unceasingly forward from these things. There isn't some kind of lack in Him that He demands of us that we have to feel for Him to flow forward with those things. He bubbles over with these. Our God delights in these things. He's liberal, lavish, generous, magnanimous, gracious. He is no tyrant. He is a king. And that's what it means to be truly kingly. The king who does not do justice and righteousness. Doesn't know his God. And fails to image him forth. Jehoiakim tragically. Only has an eye and a heart for dishonest gain. For shedding innocent blood. For practicing oppression and violence. But all such kind of violence, all such kind of displays of strength, all such efforts at accumulating wealth are empty of what is truly regal and royal. As he builds up, he tears down. As he tries to climb, he digs. And so, as a consequence, he will not be lamented, he'll be buried like a donkey. Like a beast. His body will be dragged away and discarded where it won't be a nuisance. Now you read in Second Chronicles 36.6, Against him, that's against Jehoiakim, came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Listen carefully though. This is all that we're told. The only thing we're told is that he was bound to be taken to Babylon. You're never told that he made it there, which is really striking because we know the fate of Zedekiah and Jehoiachin. We know the fate of those who were taken away into captivity. We know the fate of Shalem as he was taken into captivity, but we're told nothing, absolutely nothing. We're completely silent. All that we know is that he was bound to be taken into captivity, and then we hear nothing more. So what's, I think, obvious is he was bound to be taken in captivity, and somewhere along the way... Outside of the city, where it's not any kind of nuisance, he is disposed of, he's executed, he's thrown away like a carcass of a wild animal. He spent so much effort to live like a king, and he died like a beast. He spent so much effort to live like a king and die like a beast. And so Shalom, who was virtually never a king, is to be lamented over. Whereas Jehoiakim, who tried to live like a king is not to be lamented over at all. Men of God, rule and labor over that which you've been entrusted with so that there is a weep for a real loss upon your death. The loss of something kingly and royal in the sphere that's it been entrusted to you because you've imaged forth the grace and generosity of your Lord. Work unto the Lord. Bleed for your wives. Labor for your children. And love your neighbor. You're not the fountain. And don't try to be. When you try to be, you end up grabbing like Jehoiakim. Live on the fountain. Live on the fountain. Live in faith, knowing because of the lavish grace of your God, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Live on the fountain so that you know that whatever life you sacrifice for others will never outweigh the life you have because of the sacrifice of Christ you cannot outgive your god give knowing you can't outgive your god give knowing that that fountain won't run dry live on the fountain may you know the grace of god in christ your king and may it make you gracious then instead of lamenting for jehoiakim Judah is to go throughout the land crying out, lamenting. She's to go all throughout the land. Go to Lebanon in the far north. Go to Bashan in the northeast. Go to Abarim in the southeast. Go all over the land crying out because her lovers have been destroyed, 22 and verse 20. All the nations she's trusted in, all the false gods, all the rulers, they are destroyed. In her prosperity, as God had blessed her, she did not listen when God spoke, 22 verse 21. She didn't obey His voice. And so the wind will shepherd her shepherds, and her lovers will go away into captivity, 22 verse 22. And then she will be ashamed. And again, she's spoken of as Lebanon, that forested mountain area to the north, from which the cedars for all these building programs were taken. She's referred to as Lebanon, and she will have pain as of a woman in labor, but she will only have the pain and none of the reward. Now the final king that's named is Coniah, 22 and verse 24. We have a shortened version of his fuller name, Jeconiah. And then we have his throne name by which he's otherwise known, Jehoiachin. So Coniah, shortened version of Jeconiah, throne name, likely is Jehoiachin. He was the third king to reign following Josiah, but he's Josiah's grandson. He is the son of Jehoiakim. His was also a short three-month reign due to the rebellion of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, coming against the kingdom once again. He's compared, verse 24, to a signet ring. Now, a signet ring would get its primary worth and value not because of how ornate or precious it was in and of itself, but the authority that it was able to convey. It was whereby the king sealed documents. The kings of Judah were to function something like a signet ring. Psalm 2 tells us that the throne of David is the throne of Yahweh. They were to be the imprint of His rule upon His people. But here God is saying that even where where Koniah his signet ring, he would cast him off. He would take him off and give him into the hand of those uh, of, of their enemies. Jehoiachin, we know, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and he, along with his mother, went into captivity to die there. And in this way, he's like a broken pot. He's not a signet ring. He's not a king. He's, he's something broken, despised, uncared for. Verse 28. And so the land is then to write him down as childless. He has no offspring to succeed him sitting on the throne. We learn in 1 Chronicles 3, 17-18, he had seven sons. But as regards succession to the throne, he's regarded as childless. Then, as a glimmer of, of hope that this was referring immediately, but not in the long term... We have Zerubbabel, his grandson, who returns to the land not as a king, but as a governor. But the book of Haggai ends with God saying he will make Zerubbabel a signet ring. There's a reversal of what's happened. There's fulfillment immediately. There's no son of Jehoiachin to sit on the throne, but there's hope of something even greater. Following this list of denounced kings, which began back in chapter 1 was Zedekiah, the last ruling king. Following this list of kings, all four of them are denounced as shepherds, 23, 1, and 2. A woe is pronounced upon them for having destroyed and scattered the sheep of God's pasture, 23, 1. But isn't it striking that later in this passage, 23 and verse 3, it's God Who says he scattered his people. God has scattered them. So the shepherds scatter them. And God has scattered them. God scattered them because of judgment on the sheep and the shepherds. But what you see here is he's holding the shepherds chiefly responsible. But the reason they're scattered is as judgment upon them. But it's a judgment they've brought upon themselves and upon the people. The sheep are not innocent. But the shepherds are held chiefly responsible and after he's judged them there's hope held out for the flock he will gather the remnant back to him they will be fruitful and multiply there's echo an echo here of the promise of the command given to adam to be fruitful multiply fill the earth and there's also with that an echo of the promise made to abraham wherein he was commanded To be fruitful and multiply, but also that he would be fruitful and multiply. And this reversal of judgment is then a restoration of redemption. And it's effectual. It's something God will do. Um, Verse 4. I will set... Back up verse 3. I will gather the remnant. I will bring them back to the fold. Now verse 4, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. This is effectual. It's something God will do. And this effectual work of gathering the sheep to the flock comes into full revelation whenever God's King says, I have other sheep also that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. But before we consider the good shepherd any further, first we're promised shepherds. Twenty-three and verse four. Ephesians four, eleven tells us that the good shepherd, shepherd the risen Christ, gives shepherd teachers to his flock. Peter exhorts those shepherds, saying. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Hear Him saying, don't be like Jehoiakim. Don't be like Zedekiah. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Have the kind of glory that's found by being connected to the king that flows with grace instead of demanding of others. This is the same Peter who writes this, who you remember was asked by Christ three times, Do you love me? And each time heard the replies, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Such shepherds who know and love the good shepherd care for his flock. Such shepherds are a gift of this good shepherd who is called, here, a righteous branch. From Now, we, taking in all the allusions to Lebanon and the lightning of the house of David to the forest of Lebanon, uh, their houses being made out of cedar, taking all that in, this particular description is really striking. From the seemingly felled forest of the house of David, a branch rises up. And one who is wise and will rule with justice and righteousness. He's the opposite of Zedekiah and Jehoiakim. And under his rule, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell secure, 23 verse 6. Isaiah speaks of this branch saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of... Wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. The picture here, remember how the kings were to write their own copy of the law, that they might rule the people thereby in justice and righteousness, having wisdom to discern between good and evil. And now the picture here is of a king who fears Yahweh, who keeps His law. Who rules over his people in wisdom. He says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness according to God's truth. He shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The name of this branch is Yahweh is our righteousness. And now this is what brings this whole section that began in chapter 21 full circle. Because this is the flip of Zedekiah's name. Zedekiah's name means my righteousness is Yahweh. And here the name is flipped. Instead of righteousness Yahweh, it's Yahweh Righteousness. Such will be his rule. That instead of pining for the lost glory of their past. They will long for the greater glory of the future. They will not swear anymore saying as Yahweh who delivered us out of Egypt. But as Yahweh who gathered us out of the nations to which he scattered us. The glory. The glory. Of kings. It's not that of some fading fairy tale, but one of longed for hope blooming far brighter than we can imagine. The redemption from Egypt, with all of its signs and wonders, is to be eclipsed by the gathering of the Good Shepherd of his remnant, his flock, to dwell in the land promised them. Jeremiah 21. Then begins with Zedekiah, my righteousness is Yahweh, and ends with Yahweh is my righteousness. It it opens with exile, it closes with gathering. The greater glory has not been lost with Josiah. Josiah was only a glimpse of something greater that lied ahead. A a promise of something to arise from the leveled forests of the house of David now. So the question I put before you is, to which king do you belong? To which kingdom do you belong? There is a kingdom of righteousness and there is a kingdom of darkness. There is a kingdom that is fading like the dusk and there is a kingdom that has dawned and it is the dawning of an eternal, unfading day. Righteousness and wickedness are by no means the means by which you enter these kingdoms you don't enter either kingdom because of your own righteousness you don't even enter the kingdom of darkness because of your own wickedness you are born into both you must be born into either kingdom the way you gain citizenship in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light is by birth Colossians 1, 13-14 tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How does one get into the kingdom of righteousness? Because Not because they're righteousness, but because there's forgiveness of sins in the King. And the way you know this King, Jesus told Nicodemus, the way you, you come into this kingdom is is that you must be born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again.' The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. To those who belong to the kingdom of this world, woe to you, woe to them. Cry out, for your lovers are destroyed. The ruler of this world is cast out. This happened as Christ was lifted up on the cross. In the shadow of that event, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John 12, 27-33 By nature... So we're born, the children of Adam. We belong to the kingdom of darkness. Know that that rebellion has been squelched, and is doomed to fail by the death and because of the death and resurrection of our Lord. He will return in glory, and his rule will be made manifest. And so, we call upon all men to repent. And trust in God's King, the crucified and risen Christ, the King of righteousness. To abandon themselves upon Him in trust as Lord and Savior. Because there is no other hope. And to all of you who do, to His remnant, to His flock that He's gathering, to the first fruits of the new creation to come, Know that He will bring redemption in full. And we will dwell in the land illuminated by His glory. Ruled over by His wisdom. A land of perfect justice and righteousness and peace. We will will live under His blessed rule forever and ever. Of His kingdom there will be no end. His magnanimous grace and glory will forever be the delight of all his subjects. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, your Son, who you gave to rule redemptively over undeserving sinners, gathering them as your beloved flock, caring for them as a shepherd. Father, may we, not not wanting to become gods ourselves, but loving and adoring and worshiping you as our God, May we image you forth in that way. In gracious, joyful, giving and sacrifice. And Father, we look forward, we do that looking forward, knowing. Your, your infinite mercy and grace is so much greater than we could ever ever give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.